Pop and Schlock on KPFT. I am your co-host, Meredith Nudo, and with me, as always, is... Jay Goodson-Dodd, also known as Jake, for brevity's sake. And that it rhymes. rhymes. Yeah. All right. And if you want to take us in today, Meredith, you can give the info on what we're going to be talking about today. We are going to be talking about the Cloverfield Paradox, which dropped uh, very surprisingly after the Super Bowl. Yeah, surprised uh, surprised a lot of people, myself included. I was not expecting to see that pop up anytime soon. I wasn't either. I was thinking it was coming in April. Uh, yeah, because originally, uh, if you don't know the backstory behind the film, it's actually really interesting. It was um, an original film that was rushed in the production uh, under the title of God Particle. And it was uh, put into production and eventually kind of morphed into uh, a project uh, that became part of this Cloverfield anthology. Um, reshoots were done, rewrites were done, and eventually it just kind of morphed into this new project. And the thing that I find so interesting is that they were able to keep this a secret up until the moment whenever it wasn't, uh, because the rumors of the Netflix acquisition had been running around for a few weeks, but nobody had a timeline, which I think was, uh, which I think th that's just a startling feat in today's digital age, honestly. Yeah, I, um, it was actually on my most anticipated of 2018 list, if you remember. Yeah, I, I may not have talked about it on when we did the episode, but I, I know when I sent you the list, yeah, was I was on you, it. I know you had, uh, you had brought it up, and you were talking about how you were really looking forward to seeing this film, and how it was like complete. It was on your radar, and you were ready to see it, but you didn't know whenever it was going to get released. Right. And the fact that it just kind of popped up out of nowhere um, really... I guess it was just, it was a welcome surprise, and one of I guess one I had of the... been following it since it was still God Particle, before it became a Cloverfield movie because I really like Gugu and Batha Raw. So yeah, and it, if we're going to talk about some of the good, some of the bad of the film, because the the talk surrounding the film has been largely negative online, uh, and I feel like that is going to be a recurring theme with the things that we talk about on this show because um, we liked it. We liked it. I didn't love it. It wasn't the best thing I've ever seen in my life, but um, as someone who enjoys a good pulpy sci-fi every now and then... Uh, it's, I, it scratched that itch. Yeah, it definitely did. And uh, it did so with... Um, I, I absolutely. Let's let's get into one of the things that I really did like about the film, and I, I'll put that up front, and that's the cast. Um, love the cast. I loved... Everybody in the cast was uh, amazing, and I, I will go to bat for any project that has Chris O'Dowd because I find him charming um, to the point where he can be in a terrible movie and I will still enjoy the ever-loving ever -loving crap out of it. it is, he's just one of those presences that I'm like, ah, oh, this is like, uh, this is just a, a soothing presence that will, that will uh, alleviate whatever ills I am currently afflicted with. I just really enjoy Chris O'Dowd. And this time he got to be Roy Tournament in space. Basically. And, um, and 
he is one of as much as I enjoyed him in the film he also presented one of the film's many negatives that we'll get into later but we don't need to talk about that now I do I want to focus some time on the cast because um the film put together just an amazing cast of basically actors that you should be watching actors who you should you should be paying attention to at this very moment uh Daniel Bruhl uh Gugu Mbatha-Ra um Elizabeth Debicki Elizabeth Debicki Chris O'Dowd um uh and I'm, tr I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman who uh his name is like like looting me right now um but he shows up and he's just a he seems to be one of the better competent character actors of the now um the the one who played um one who played Monk. I can't remember his name. Uh, I think John Ortiz. John Ortiz. John Ortiz. John Ortiz. Yes. Um, he. It, it's. It's striking how these Cloverfield films um, seem to assemble just really good casts. Um, and really good casts that work well together. Yeah, and the 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 interplay and the banter off of each other. It, there was an authenticity to the performances that. Um, you don't normally see in films like this, and by films like this, I mean pulpy sci-fi. Whenever you see pulpy sci-fi, usually there seems to be a, a kind of a deficiency in the acting department because that's just the nature of the beast. But whenever you get something that, and I truly believe that this film wasn't aspiring to be anything other than pure pulp, to have a cast of and this And it's a caliber, Cloverfield movie. What were, the, what were you expecting? It's going to be pulp. That's literally the entire point of the franchise is to be pulpy. Yeah, and, well, I mean, if you look at uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, which we did an episode of that in the previous incarnation of this show, that film was, I would say, 98% perfect, um, in that that film worked on so many levels, from the directing, the script, the acting, everything was just so expertly handled. Um, and, of course, the, the third act twist was not great and it and there could be minor snips and it would be a perfect film possibly one of my favorite of the last decade with only minor edits and that was made. only Dr dan trackenberg's first movie right uh, i think it was his second or third feature oh okay uh, but i do know that he was mostly known for doing that portal fan film yeah and it's one of those things where if we're talking about the positives that this film uh, is giving us and like the, the positive energy it's putting out into the world, it's the fact that J.J. Abrams is taking the time to push new talent. Um, you know, Dan Trachtenberg, this was one of his earliest films whenever he did 10 Cloverfield Lane. This is Julius Ona's second? Yeah, film. so it's, it's one of those things where he's highlighting and giving a spotlight to creators who otherwise probably would not have this kind of platform. And... I see so many people, so many people online being negative and just dragging the film through the mud and saying it's like, oh, um, this is it's not a groundbreaking film. It doesn't do anything new. It's not even worth watching. And I just under I just do not understand how you can have so little going on in your life that you can't enjoy a film for what it is. If you only watch groundbreaking movies, then I'm sorry to tell you, but you probably only watch one movie every decade. And maybe every five years, because technology continues to move forward. So maybe maybe groundbreaking is, is going to be a little, the timeline's a little bit, you, you're going to watch almost nothing. And even and, If that's your only metric. And even beyond groundbreaking, the idea that every film has to hit some sort of, some sort of high watermark. Uh, and I know that we're kind of in the middle of the lead up to awards season and all of that hoopla, but not everything needs to be a prestige picture. 
Okay, I mean, even in the old studio system in the 1920s and 30s, n not everything was Ben Hur. Not everything was Gone with the Wind. And honestly, if everything was Ben Hur and everything was Gone with the Wind, it'd be so boring. We I, need variety. Yeah, you need variety. And I'm one of those people who, because I'm, I'm a huge fan of sci-fi, there, there's room for all different types of science fiction. Just because this film decides to be pulpy nonsense, it doesn't negate the existence of things like uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey or Blade Runner. Those are just as legitimate forms of sci-fi as this is. I have, an, uh, I have an appreciation for even the lesser Planet of the Apes films, because sci-fi can be more than one thing. Sci-fi doesn't have to fit into one little bubble. and That is literally the entire point of sci-fi to begin with. I know, and I feel like we're living in this world where it's, it's like whenever I talk to people who, uh, and I, I find myself guilty of this because I like to know what I'm getting, um, but you'll hear people who say, it's like, oh, I don't read sci-fi, I read speculative fiction, and I want to box their ears. I want to become physically violent, and I understand the desire to have an accurate category for what you're reading mm -hmm. but it's like it's like the it's like nerds who say i don't read comic books i read graphic novels so funny enough about a decade ago i went to a talk by marjan satrapi who talked about how much she hated when people referred to persepolis as a graphic novel and she's like she she asked them to their face why are you so embarrassed to say comics what i wrote and what i drew and what i adapted into a film was a comic there's no shame in that yeah, there, there's there's no shame in grasping hold onto the genre that you want to work in and just taking it by the throat and choking the life out of it. Like you, if you want to do that thing, do the thing and do it to the fullest extent of your ability. And that's the one thing that I really liked about this Cloverfield film is that whatever intention the directors and the writers had whenever they set out to make God Particle, that's all well and good. Somewhere along the line, they realized that. It was it fit into this masterwork of whatever J.J. Abrams was planning to do, and you can say that it was clumsily done or whatever, but at the same time, they recognized that this was an opportunity to do something, and they obviously had no objection to it. So it's one of those things where I look at the finished film and people talk about it, it's like, oh, it was a clumsy edit job, it doesn't fit in. And if you look at it, Cloverfield is still a series of anthology films. It's still independent moving parts. It's very, very, very thin connective tissue, and that's by design. I know, and it's one of those things where if you look at what Cloverfield is setting out to do, they can still do the same exact sort of thing that they uh, have been doing from the beginning. The same exact thing. And I guarantee you, it, it, they don't have to change a thing. They really don't. Um, if I look at what they've been doing, and I look at what they're probably going to do going forth, because what I've heard, the speculation, is that the next, uh, the next entry is going to be set during World War II. And there's no reason that they can't do that. There's no reason that you can't do a sci-fi film set in World War II. There's no reason that this film erases the continuity of the original entry. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't tie in neatly, but it doesn't have to. And that's the beauty of science fiction. It's the beauty of anthology. If you want to make the connections, you can. And I, it, it's like one of one of my uh, one of my favorite little things is trying to fill in gaps all on my own um so i like i like trying to i like trying to make my own <laughs> i like to, to make my own connections and 
I can with these Cloverfield. So I have a question for you, though. Since you like to make your own connections, how did you feel about the fact that this one does explicitly tie in with the first two, whereas the first two had a very tenuous connection at best? Well, I think that this one provides the connective tissue. Um, in that the they they're going off of that old it's like the internet meme of a few years ago it's like oh the the hydron collider is going to like split universes so the idea is that the Cloverfield paradox of the title is that it splits multiple dimensions across multiple timelines and uh, there can be repercussions felt across uh, multiple different universes so the ending of the film, which is one of the reshoots that they did, which we get a very clear shot of a gigantic Cloverfield monster, which was, I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. Um, that doesn't mean that it's the same Cloverfield monster from the original Cloverfield film. It just means that that monster exists across multiple universes and maybe it ended up in that one. The same thing that those monsters could have somehow found their way into the universe of 10 Cloverfield Lane. It's not necessarily acting as a prequel or a bridge, it's just oper- operating as uh, it, it's it's basically like a vestibule where just the doors are flung open and just there's bleed through. And I think that that's fun because it leaves, it leaves open opportunities for future filmmakers to do whatever they want and they can go, oh, it's a result of Earth 223B, like whatever. It's a very exciting sandbox. Yeah, it's, it's a very huge sandbox that is irradiated and filled with monsters. I don't know how you can't be excited by that if you like pulpy sci-fi. And Which if, we do. And if you don't, what are you doing watching Cloverfield films? Like that's kind of that was kind of my thing too. They were going in and they're like, well, it wasn't it wasn't this really heady intellectual high art. And I was like, you're watching a Cloverfield movie. What? Yeah, like it, it, they never advertise themselves as such. Like why are you taking time out of your busy schedule of watching Interstellar on a constant loop? to watch a Cloverfield film when that's obviously not what you want. There's and there's nothing wrong with liking pure, heady, hard sci-fi. Which the both of us do too. Like, I love that stuff. I, I, I liked Interstellar more than you did. You, you liked it at all, which uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's funny because uh, over the over the holiday break last year, uh, my wife Tori, her little cousin is really into um, like uh the like stem fields and science mm-hmm. and, and you know like ast- like astrophysicists and stuff like that and he's like well i i heard interstellar was really interesting uh can you rent it and we can watch it and i i kill bill sirens went off in the back <laughs> of my mind and i'm like i'm looking at tori and she's looking at me and she knows how much i hate this film well, yeah. I'm like, don't make me watch this with you please don't make me watch this with you if i have to listen to Anne hathaway give that speech another time i swear i will throw myself in front of a bus i can't do it and so she ended up watching it with him and he's like you know what that was kind of terrible and i was like i like this kid i married into the right family so it's but you picked the wrong movie uh movie show partner yeah well i mean the the fact of the matter is if we agreed on everything this would be a very very boring show very very quickly um, we've agreed on everything thus far though i know but i think that that may just be the luck of the draw i feel like the closer we like the more that the further we get into the year because i don't know how closely you've looked at the calendar for what we're going to be watching i don't know how closely you've looked at that but there's some stuff on there that i know we're going to disagree on and i'm trying to find at least one talking animal movie to get you into this year like even if we have to even if we have to go back and retroactively review beverly hills chihuahua 2 
That's not interference. That's that's Meredith actually hissing directly into the microphone because she hates uh, talking animal films. Anything where there's a real animal that is C uses CGI to manipulate their mandible into getting them to talk, anything that does that, she hates it more than critics of Cloverfield hate fun. Uh, babe accepted. Okay, but Babe was um, there's a groundbreaking. Yeah, film there we for go. You. That's the, that's the uh, the wa the high water mark of talking animal movies. Yeah, that's the high water mark of film. It's like if you want to talk about groundbreaking cinema, there's basically uh, there's the Ten Commandments and Babe. Fun fact: I've never actually seen a movie other than Babe. I just watch Babe every single time there's an episode. She's she's like, remember that time that the farmer said, that'll do, pig, and then a Cloverfield monster ate him? The funny thing is, I would actually watch that movie. If I watched a movie where, like, the Cloverfield paradox created a farm of talking animals, that would be interesting to me. I think I'm, I, I I'm going to write a spec script for a Cloverfield film. If J.J. Abrams is listening to this, don't write that yourself. I can do it. I have the time. I promise. I can't wait to ignore that movie ignore that movie we're gonna like do you understand that that is gonna be our eventual claim to fame is us co-directing <laughs> the cloverfield pigadox we're gonna end up like terry gilliam and terry jones on monty python and the holy grail over that one i'm pretty sure that i'm terry gilliam in this situation i i can't argue with that and there's gonna be like one film that i never get made Mm -hmm. yeah. I do think that uh, who, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote is going to be coming out soon, though. It's, it's supposed to. I don't know if it's going to hit this year or if it's going to make it up or if it's going to be next year, but it should be coming in. And that's going to be right in our wheelhouse. Um, but as far as the Cloverfield series is concerned, I want to talk a little bit more about the film specifically. Some things that I thought maybe there are some legitimate criticisms of course um, there are because um we're not one of we're not one of those groups that's just gonna eh, thumbs down it's total garbage don't waste your time no we're gonna try to give you like something to chew on and i think that this is one of those films where if you like good pulpy sci-fi watch it definitely there's stuff to enjoy now there are things that i didn't quite care for so there are some things that i think didn't quite fit and uh my buzzword for this for this radio show is tone uh once again we're going to be talking about tone and this film did have at times an inconsistent tone and what i mean by that is there is a underlying feeling that the there was a seriousness to it of oh the, the multiple universes colliding hard sci-fi there's an energy shortage it's the end of the world as we know it and then there's chris o'dowd just a being chris o'dowd in space don't don't eat that bagel it's just he's he's just there with his irish accent being just lovable and charming and there's one moment which i mean i'm pretty sure everybody has kind of which talked about it by he's now he's fine up until that point he's fine which i love until... and again we're we love chris o'dowd yeah love it like there's i'm not I, gonna say a single bad thing about chris o'dowd i i want to grow up and be roy trineman so but at one point in this film uh and i should know i should state by now that the film has established this idea of hard sci-fi even going to the point of body horror almost cronenbergian mm -hmm. body horror at this point there is a scene where after firing their uh fire in the laser uh they 
pull a very bloodied, very uh, disgustingly embedded into the wall Elizabeth Debicki out of just a maelstrom of twisted wire and electronics that have permeated her body after basically phasing in from another universe. And it is absolutely, it's somewhat cringy to watch. They have to cut her out of the machinery and they have to perform surgery on her and it's frightening. And but she's screaming and throughout she, it too. And yeah. she's screaming throughout the whole process. It is pure, unadulterated sci-fi horror on the same level with the chestburster scene from the original Alien. It's I don't know if I would go that far, but I, I think that it was on par with what you would see in uh, Sunshine. Yeah. We've made Sunshine comparisons p prior to the show. That's another good example. and But it's, it's that same level of, of tension, of just, just almost visceral levels of physical pain and coming see, through the screen. But that tension is never again replicated. And mm. see, that's that's one of the tonal inconsistencies that we, that we talked about, is that there's very, after that point, there's very very little sense of claustrophobia. Uh, there's very little sense of tension. There's, you, you kind of just go from point to point to point to point, but I don't feel like any of the tension is is ramping up after they find Elizabeth Debicki. Yeah, after that moment, after the extrication from the wall, that is the tension climax of the film. Right. And everything after that is just a slow burn to the end. There's, it's, it's a release of tension. There's no further build. And it's complicated by the fact that in a weirdly comedic, comedic moment, uh, Chris O'Dowd is sucked, his arm is sucked into a wall, and when they pull him out of the wall, he loses the arm. And like up to his shoulder, and it's just it's just mm, enough elbow up to well it's above oh, yeah, the yeah, elbow yeah, little, it's above the elbow between the elbow and shoulder yeah so and it's he's playing it it's playing it purely for laughs where's me arm and part of it is nothing can be said with an Irish accent that doesn't sound funny and I'm I'm sorry to like my people but that's just that's just the way that we are it's a funny accent and I think they knew that. Because eventually... They're always after me lucky arms. I hate you so much. I know. I hate me too sometimes. But not for that pun. No, that one... I'm, I'm sad I didn't think of that one. But there's a point where later the arm comes back and it becomes almost this Sam Raimi pseudo-comedy bit where... It's not even pseudo-comedy. It's played straight-up comedy. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. It's a very funny scene. But it, but doesn't it doesn't belong. fit. It doesn't belong Like you said, if, if Sam Raimi had made a hard sci-fi in space movie, that that would have fit. Yeah. It was a very him kind of like where, where they, they have the super source, but then juxtapose with the super comedic and the really serious part is part of the comedy. But it doesn't work in this particular context. And I feel like that is, if I have one complaint about the film, it is that it doesn't have a consistent tone. And oddly enough, I thought that the inconsistency in tone would come from the fact that it was um, retrofitted as a script to become a Cloverfield movie. But I don't think that that actually is the point, because the scenes that were added to fit it into this Cloverfield universe were largely uh, sections with... Uh, uh, the I can't remember her actual character's name, which is a problem. Um, but Gugu and Ra's husband back on Earth, those scenes were Michael. added. Yeah. yeah, 
they were added to give uh, perspective as to what was happening on Earth and to draw connections. He eventually finds his way into the bunker from 10 Cloverfield Lane. Um, it's Those were the things that gave connected tissue. It wasn't necessarily the rewrites of character dialogue that created the inconsistency of tone. The shift between Earth and the station was not the inconsistency of tone. It was the idea that um, something very, very serious is going on, and yet somehow Chris O'Dowd is here to comment on it. It's, it, it's kind of as if they made a film about being trapped in one of the towers on 9-11, but then there's like a comic relief character who is making jokes at the most inopportune time. That is kind of the way that I viewed it. And I mean, it wasn't even played as dark comedy. No, either. See, then a dark, dark comedy, comedy would have worked. interlude would have worked, but this was just a straight up. Uh, I, I was thinking like thing from the Adams family. Yeah, and how very nonchalant he was about. Oh, my arm is trying to say something. You better get to the pen. You know, really. I, am, I, I feel like if most people had lost an arm in that horrifying a way, and you're in the middle of space, and you've merged with another universe, and you don't know where Earth is. Like I was complete. I, I was completely ready for him to go get some super glue. We're gonna try to reattach me arm. Was he? Was he maybe in shock? I mean, is it a shock? I don't know. But like you said, it, that scene should have been very unsettling and creepy when it starts writing. No, he should have been freaked out to the point of hysterics. It should have been something that was like... Uh, or alternately in shock. And it was very it made it, obvious that the, the, the laughing about it was more shock related than anything. What it should have been is it should have been unnerving. Is, yeah. is what I'm saying because in a situation in a situation like that if you want to play it for comedy that's entirely fine but go dark with it so that you match the rest of the tone right because the up and down the up and down of the tone it did feel very very uneven but for the most part I feel that the film acquitted itself well with what it was trying to do um, I mean I'm one of those people who will complain about tone until the cows come home but at the same time I still found the film enjoyable on a lot of different levels and it's it's really one of those things where I can't if the alternative was recasting Chris O'Dowd it's not worth it because he did give he did give the film some bright spots and I really enjoyed like watching him in the film it's just I don't think he was the problem no he wasn't necessarily the problem I think that the, I think I think that the way that that scene was directed yeah I think that and maybe it's because it like we said it's a young director who, second movie second movie maybe doesn't have a good handle on exactly what he wanted that scene to be or maybe he did and he just maybe he just made an error in judgment because Chris O'Dowd can do drama and he can do deeply unsettling comedy because I had seen him uh, when they did the uh, of Mice and Men. They, he was so good in that. He was excellent. He was so good. Excellent in of Mice and Men. And there's some very dark, kind of very unsettling moments that he had to have. And he, he so he is capable of doing that. And part of me is a little disappointed that they didn't tap into that that talent that he has. Well, it's like, uh, and it's it's funny because I will go to bat and defend sci-fi a lot more than I will other films. Um, I am a staunch defender of both Prometheus and Alien Covenant, which you won't see a lot of people do. Those films also get a lot of pushback. And if you want to talk about uh, subverting expectations with actor to role, look at Danny McBride in Alien Covenant. Because 
everyone was kind of expecting Kenny Powers in space, but that wasn't what it was. And I think it's... I still want to see Kenny Powers in space. I mean, I would watch Kenny Powers in space. Um, I I would watch... uh, Maybe we can do a a, a third season of Vice Principals set on the moon. I'm okay with that. I would watch that. Uh, But there's... I feel like typecasting is one of those things where going against the grain can produce some of the most interesting results that you will ever get on film. And I feel like maybe they were too afraid to go that way with Chris O'Dowd. I feel like the reason he was cast was to be Chris O'Dowd. I know, and it's crazy because he had been nominated for a Tony for playing Lenny. He was excellent. I saw yeah. it at the movie theater when they did the the simulcast. Yeah. That, I mean, that was Wonderful. a great, that was a great performance. He's and incredibly talented, and I think it was a disappointment that they didn't take advantage of the fact that they have that. And it's funny because uh, I didn't follow the production of the film as closely as you did, and so my first exposure to the fact that Chris O'Dowd was in the film was the day that it was released. Um, I did not know that he was in the film until the trailer dropped, and I was like, "Oh, that's." interesting kind of an odd choice because from my reading of it whenever it was still under production as god particle was that it was heady sci-fi i wasn't under the impression that it was pulp that impression came along whenever it started to become aware that it was going to be a cloverfield chris o'dowd still has the chops to do heady sci-fi in fact i would love to see if someone cast him in in a role like that yeah i and I feel, I feel like eventually he will end up branching out and doing things that are beyond what people consider to be his wheelhouse. It's just a matter of when a producer thinks that this is the thing you do and this is the thing you do well, then it's you always hear about it. It's like, oh, we want to cast a such-and-such such type. Um, it's I, I think I was reading of it recently, like in the wake of uh, The Big Sick, you'll hear people say, it's like, oh, we'd love a Kumail Nanjiani type. We're not going to cast Kumail Nanjiani, but we'll, let's find someone who's like him. And so I feel like there's a lot of people who are, you know, they'll put this, it's like, we'd like a Chris O'Dowd type. And what they're really saying is we watched the IT crowd once and we want Roy. But what I really like though, is that they, they do have uh, Gugum Bathara and Elizabeth Debicki, both of whom have incredible ranges and make a lot of very interesting choices in their careers uh, that make me very excited to see what they do from now on and it was part of why i was so excited to see this in the first place well it's like uh google and raw has she does not have a type exactly if you look at her imdb reel it's she's so amazing all over the place from looking at things like you know she had uh she was in beauty and the beast last year as uh plumette. She was, yeah she was plumette and then you have something like uh like what was it uh God, I can't remember the name of it. That narrows it down to a lot of things. Uh, the period piece that she did. Bell. Yeah, Bell. Beautiful, got, beautiful movie. So, they got so much acclaim, and she's just uh, kind San of... San Junipero. Yeah, she's just popping up in these projects, and she refuses to allow herself to be defined as any one thing, and I think that she's going to be one of those performers that, over the next couple of years, is going to garner so much attention just because of her range. She's an exciting performer. She really is, and it's one of those things where... I haven't seen everything that she's in, but the things that she has been in, I've been so surprised at how just diverse her abilities on screen are. Oh, yeah. She's very deft. She just goes in and out and in and out of roles and always and that's, wonderful. And it's one of those things where... I didn't even recognize her in Jupiter Ascending. I completely forgot that she was in that. Yep. And it's, it's so... And 
it's such a it's such a refreshing thing to see young actors and actresses who are pulling that off. Um, and another good example of that is in this film is Daniel Bruhl. He's one of those character. He's one of those actors who shows up and inhabits a character, and he can go from like uh, his character in Quentin Tarantino's *Inglorious Bastards*, which was a very nuanced performance, to something like *Winter* or not *Winter Soldier*, *Civil War*, where he played Baron Zemo, and with it was just pure dripping like comic book mustache twirling villainy. To this one, where there was that shades of gray, do I believe him? Do I not believe him? Sort of situation. Right, and they tried to set him up as a mustache twirling villain. Only to find out. Only oh, to wait. subvert that trope. Yeah. yeah. And it was the other universe's version of him that was the traitor. Yeah. And it's. And I was. Uh, I will admit that I was a little bit on to uh, Elizabeth Debicki from the beginning because I was like, look, last year she was trying to kill the Guardians of the Galaxy. I know that something's up with this woman. Um, she was also great in The Man from Uncle. She's one of those a actresses. Very underrated movie as well. That movie is legitimately great. Yeah. People do not give it enough credit. It's a great pulpy it's a great pulpy spy movie. I feel I've I feel like later this year um We use the word pulp a lot. Pulp to me is tone to you. Yeah. Well, pulp is a type of tone. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it's one of those things where we might have to rewatch that movie. And uh, later this year, when uh, Mission Impossible Seven or Six comes out, uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, um, we'll we'll have to watch Man from Uncle and that because now they both have Henry Cable and uh, his mustache. <laughs> that so that's that's something that we can sit and compare. You know, the idea of tone um, and how important it is to delivering a story because. Honestly, it's it's the thing that, you know, I've been saying this since the first episode of the show. I feel like it's the driving force of what makes a movie work or not, is if they understand what kind of story they're trying to tell. And while this film has deviations and dips and rises in what they consider the tone to be, um, overall, I would say that they had an idea of what they were wanting to do. And I think that they nailed it because they weren't, they didn't, I don't think they set out to try anything that they didn't attain. Would you? I I agree. It's. I mean, I've seen I've seen so many films that set up a target for themselves that then they far overshoot or just veer off course wildly. So the room. Yeah. That's one of them. The room, not room. Right. <laughs> but it's it's one of those things where. I like to I like to look at films and I ask myself at the end of the, at the end of it I'm like okay um, I can make my own judgments as to whether I enjoyed it but did the film based on the metric that it set for itself did it succeed was it successful in accomplishing what it set out to do and I feel like Cloverfield Paradox did there are a lot of films that they set out to do something and then they they just they whiff it hard um, we talked about it whenever we were talking about Hostiles about mm -hmm. how that film truly nailed everything that it wanted to do. Now, is it an enjoyable film? Not really. But that doesn't mean that it isn't uh, that it isn't worthwhile and that it didn't do something extraordinarily well. Um, we talked about that on Proud Mary as well. We talked about, yes, like going back to Proud Mary, that was a film that had a s similar critical reaction to where... I, I guess people were expecting one thing and they trashed it based on their own expectations, not on the merits of what the film was trying to do. See, and I guess I wasn't as disappointed with this because I I got the movie I was wanting. This I, I wanted God Particle to just be a a 
a crazy romp in space. And we I got a crazy romp in space. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's like, I love, I, I mentioned this earlier in the program, I love the original, the terrible Planet of the Apes sequels. They are just, I mean, they are hot garbage. Let, let's admit, they are not well made. The tone and the theme is all over the place, and they contradict each other to no end. But I still enjoy them because that's that's a type of sci-fi I can enjoy. I also greatly enjoy the new Planet of the Apes films, which are actually some of the best handled sci-fi, mainstream sci-fi that I've seen in a long time. And each of those successive films got better, and each of those successive films straddled the line as far as tone is concerned between heady sci-fi and pulp nonsense. Because you have to have a degree of your tongue planted in your cheek to make a film about sentient warlike apes like but it also helps that you've got Andy Serkis yes who's amazing but, but you also cannot make a film like that and just throw it out into the void without giving it a voice you know like it, there has to be a reason for it the original planet of the apes film films they they did have a very strong socio-political message as much as it was hidden under layers and layers of uh nonsense but i i feel, I feel like that's maybe sci-fi nerds are the worst thing to ever happen to sci-fi the same way that comic book nerds are the worst thing to ever happen to comics because video game nerds are the worst things to happen to video games anime nerds are the worst thing to happen to anime so yeah it's, you can say because sci-fi the people who espouse themselves as sci-fi fans are the ones who will dismiss anything that isn't avant-garde or just what they consider to be highbrow intellectual and that's not what I like my sci-fi to be sometimes. And speaking from a standpoint of a writer, I would not want to write that type of sci-fi all the time. A lot of the fans also seem to not realize how difficult it really is to write something that's heady and actually hits the mark. Yeah, it is It is one of those things where... Writing a writing a truly intellectual bit of science fiction is not something that everybody can do. Um, I count myself among that because a lot of science fiction fans like there to be a tether to real world science and STEM fields, things like that. But most people do not have a firm grasp on those concepts. Not everything can be Solaris, and that's okay. Yeah, and not everything needs to be. Right, and I still and I say this: I love Solaris. I love the book. I love the original movie, and I love the George Clooney movie. I love all three of them. And, and it's it's what's, uh, you, you know, I, I feel like we're going to be talking about uh, later this year, whenever Duncan Jones's new movie comes out, we're going to be... Mute. Yeah, Mute. We're definitely going to be sitting down to talk about that, because uh, as, as far as sci-fi goes, we do... There still are excellent uh, hardline sci-fi films that appeal to the to the intellectual viewer being made. But that doesn't mean it, that we should toss aside everything else that there is. Just because I enjoyed something like Moon doesn't mean that I can't enjoy Cloverfield films. Right, and I feel like that's, like you said, I, I think that the science fiction fan community often cannibalizes itself. And it, there's there's think, a lot of condescension and insulting if you, if you say, oh, hey, well, I really like this 
kind of pulpy. I need to stop saying that word. Well, it's take a shot every time Meredith says pulpy. Well, Oops, you're dead. Well, to like to put it in terms of what we of where this show came from, you know, we called the show Pop and Schlock because we wanted to look at not only what's popular in mainstream culture, but the things that are kind of off the beaten path and that you know that what they used to call schlock cinema. And I don't think that uh, Cloverfield Paradox fits into that category because. It's not something that is willfully stupid or ignoring of the rules of the genre and just dismissive of, you know, good filmmaking. It's just a film that embraces the tropes of the genre it is selected to embrace. That's, I, that's, I mean, it's... It's a liminal space. Yeah, it's... it's and the, the thing you have to realize about sci-fi is that sci-fi is, is one huge intersecting collection of Venn diagrams. It is not one thing. It'll never be one thing. And it's it constantly splintering. It's 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 like it's like a religion. It's you know the the dogma does not stay the same in every little sect. And I'm one of those people who enjoys a little bit of everything. You know, I love schlock sci-fi. Like, I love, like, you know, like, mutant rat people from beyond yes. Saturn's Rim. Like, I love that sci-fi, you know. And I love stuff like, uh, I love stuff like Moon and 20, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I love Blade Runner. I, the, I love, you know, the idea of dystopian sci-fi, cyberpunk, all of these different yeah. subgenres. But I feel like we are entering a sphere of the way that we look at media and the way that we look at films and movies and art in general, where everybody is so dismissive. That's the word that I think that is rumbling around in the back of my head. I think head it's because dismissive time. gets clicks. Dismissive does get dismissive clicks. gets clicks. Dismissive gets uh, page views, reactions. They gets, page views. It gets the ad dollars. And that's why. And I, I feel like that attitude is extremely detrimental to having good discourse about film. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to get good discussion about film, and we're not going to get improvement in film unless people are willing to sit down and have a serious discussion about the good and the bad of what's put out into the world. Right, and I would like to bring up, a, there is an excellent, excellent, excellent article by William Das of Film School Rejects. Uh, if you can look it up, it's titled, Hey Netflix, Let's Talk VOD Domination. It is a wonderful article about the stigma against video on demand, against going straight to streaming and against going straight to DVD, where he points out that video on demand is actually very exciting for filmmakers because it it's one more distribution model for people that may not otherwise get opportunities through, uh, through uh, film festivals, through the studio model. And he talks about how the, the video on demand is, is bringing a lot of uh, very exciting and interesting new filmmakers to the eyeballs of audiences. It is a good thing. Yeah. And yet there is this stigma. They're like, oh, well, Bright was terrible and uh, Cloverfield Paradox were terrible. So, oh, my God, the, they just need to stay out of the straight to video on demand. And I think that is not a very well, uh, and healthy it, or and good I think, attitude. I think that the attitude is going to change because while admittedly Bright was a meandering dumpster fire of epic proportions. I feel like Cloverfield Paradox was actually kind of a slam dunk because 
I don't know how viable the film would have been if it was released into theaters, because that would have required people to get out of their house and pay money to see a film. And as great as the cast is in this film, we are also movie geeks. You know, we love Chris O'Dowd. We love Gugu Mbatha-Ra. We love John Ortiz. We love these, these actors. But the general public... Not so much. Those names don't resonate just yet. They would probably only and recognize David Oyelowo. Probably. And then the... He was great, by the way. He was, Yeah, he was amazing. But this film, if it was released into theaters, doesn't have the star power to draw people in. And I feel like that Cloverfield name, based off of the last film, I feel like people would have been like, oh, I don't want to pay money to get jerked around again. But released as a surprise on Super Bowl Sunday on Netflix where people could just click and tune in. That in and of itself gave the film more eyes than it ever would have in a theater. That made me feel like I was the real winner of the Super Bowl. It, it was. I was so surprised and so happy. And Jake messaged me because I was, I was uh, my mom's birthday dinner. Happy birthday, mom. Uh, I, I sent the message. I'm like, hey, guess what? You know, you wanted to see God Particle? Well, now it's the Cloverfield Paradox, and it's on Netflix in about 30 minutes. And I messaged him in, like, all caps. Ah! Yeah, because I mean, it was. it's one of those things where if we look at the paradigm for how people consume media, the needle is ticking towards streaming. That's the way it is. Physical media is going away. So that idea of what used to be direct to DVD, that's gone. I still admit that I buy DVDs because what happens if my internet goes out? Yeah, I, I'm I'm the same way. Yeah. Like I I'll I'll buy the Blu-ray that comes with the digital copy that comes with uh you know a physical. I, copy I buy of most of my movies on iTunes now, but uh, sometimes if if it's difficult to find, I'll get it on DVD because, like I said, sometimes my internet goes out. Yeah. Because I'm kind of situated in a really weird spot, and so it, it can be. It can be a little funky, so if I want to watch something, I still have that option. There's also a lot of things that aren't available on streaming. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's 100% true. I uh, I can't find until the end of the world anywhere. It's. You may have to do like a deep dive for that, and it may not be. Oh. It may not be streaming anywhere, but you may nope. be able to get a digital copy of it somewhere. It's only available uh, region two for like 150 bucks on Amazon. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, that's and. I might be able to find a laser disc on on eBay, but I don't have a laser disc player. Yeah, but I mean, it's if you look at the distribution model for certain types of film, there there isn't a stigma associated with it. Like, um, I know, and the the only reason that I know this is because uh, I I'm a teacher of the youths. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the DC animated films. Um, I don't really ever watch them, but my students love them. And I always know when a new one is coming out because it, they always go straight to disc. They always go straight to yeah. disc and digital. And nobody seems to have any stigma against those because they're animated. And right? therefore for kids and therefore not and real therefore, cinema, which yeah, is, and, yeah. that's not fair and either. That's, and that's not fair because some of those films like I've, on the recommendation of my students, like, you really need to watch this one. It's really well done. And I'll sit down and watch it. And I'm like, wow, this really is good. I'm looking forward to the Gotham by Gaslight one. Which just came out this week. Oh, great. I need to look that up. Uh, I also think that, that uh, DC Bombshells would do great mm -hmm. if they adapted that as a series of the straight-to-video-on-demand straight yeah, straight or straight-to-DVD movies. So, and, you know, things like those do not have the stigma attached. Eventually, I think because of Netflix and because of studios like, uh, like Amazon is really getting into the idea of prestige streaming, 
I think we're going to see a shift in the way that people feel about these films because eventually there's going to be one that's just a mega hit. I'm talking something that's like the Stranger Things of direct to streaming film because we're already stream you look at Netflix and Amazon original TV content nobody has a bias against those they think that they're great most of them are op- received with open arms well, again, and they're they're doing some interesting things that you're not seeing on television uh, danger and eggs on Amazon uh, one of the th- few things that I would arguably say is a groundbreaking children's show yeah and so what we're gonna see over the next couple of years is the idea that that direct streaming outlet is viable and I think that the real power play is gonna be when Disney launches their streaming service because the the news that broke this week that they're developing another Star Wars uh, series uh, headed up by the showrunners from Game of Thrones they've said that they're gonna be a series of films they have not said that they will be theatrically released would it be a major power play to drop a new Star Wars film on a Disney exclusive streaming service? Of course it would. And that would be the game changer. Now, Netflix and Amazon, places like that, they have the opportunity to do something just like that. Um, I guarantee, I don't know if it's coming out this year. I don't know if it's coming out next year. But Netflix is debuting an original film by Martin freaking Scorsese, yep. starring Robert De Niro. It is, in its, for all intents and purposes, it is a career dream project for Scorsese. He's apparent- and Scorsese still has chops. I loved Hugo. Hugo was great. Hugo was and beautiful. If uh, if we ever have a t- if we ever have a chance to sit down and talk about like for like films that got skipped by mainstream media, we need to sit down and watch Silence. If you haven't seen that, especially because with your Catholic upbringing, I'm sure you'll have like a lot to say about that particular film. It was amazing. Yeah, I'm interested in seeing it. But I, I uh, wanted to read the book too. I've read the book. The book is, and this is just me coming as both a writer and a teacher of literature. Um, it's always interesting for me to read books that are translated from their original language um, to see how personality translates through the language barrier. And that's one of those books that whenever I read it, I was thinking, I wonder if the author intended the tone to come off this way or if it was just because they were trying to find the most accurate translation for the original text. It's a really interesting book. And right. It's, and I'm not an overly religious person, but I found that book deeply affecting, which doesn't happen to me all that often. Um, and that's one of the things that I, I love about that I love about sci-fi is that good sci-fi really does it lingers with you. Um, and I'm kind of I, I'm on a sci-fi kick right now. I am too. I'm funny huge, enough, I'm on a huge we, sci-fi. We've been kick talking right about this offline. I'm I'm doing a rewatch of Max Hedrum right now, which ugh, it's it's still amazing. Yeah, I, I still love Max Hedrum. I know people laugh. LOL, he's the Max Hedrum. He's it, that's that's not a campy show though. No, it's they, it, that's it, the thing. People think that it's like this really goofy. Oh, it's that pitch man from the '80s that was the computer generated man. The show is very incisive. It's very uh, dramatic. It's very interesting. It's it's there's still so much. Uh, it feels very contemporary despite the visuals, and. Uh, it, it's it's not what people tend to dismiss it as, and I think it's that it's something that deserves. It's it's definitely worth reevaluating through a modern lens because it was very much both a product of and ahead of its time, which you don't get to say about a lot of films. It, it still feels very now. Well, despite the visual, obviously. Yeah, I mean, obvi- obviously, there's an update. There's 
a, a, a certain feel to it that can only be attributed to that time frame. Right. But at the same time, I feel like the... Uh, it holds up incredibly well. Yeah, the, the, the themes and the messages of it hold up to modern 21st century ideas better than some 21st century media does. Um, trying to think because we are running out of time. Is there anything that we wanted to cover that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet regarding the film? Because this is one of those things that I, fe I, I fear that the negative critical backlash will get people to not see it. And I, I, I would... If you enjoyed any of the other Cloverfield films, please go out and watch this. It, it's not, you don't even have to, you don't have to go out and watch anything. Just plop down in front of the TV and watch it because it's, it's well worth your time. It's an hour and 45 minutes. It's not, it's not overly heavy. You can just sit and enjoy a good pulpy, fun sci-fi romp. That, it's, it's a good have on in the background movie. It's, it definitely is. And it's, the one thing that I will say about it, it's never boring. There's, it's never a film that I got bored with. Uh, inconsistencies in tone aside, it was very well paced, and I felt like they made a really good, accurate use of the time that they were given uh, to push the plot forward. And that's something that I can appreciate, because there are so many films that get bogged down in their own plot, and this is definitely not one of those. No, and uh, you know, we, we keep going back to Proud Mary, but it was the same thing. It's still just a linear it was interesting to me that they had a relatively linear plot for what was a uh, wibbly wobbly timey wimey story yeah and and i was fine with that oh and wibbly wobbly timey wimey i mean how can people who how can we live in a day and age where doctor who has seen like m a meteoric rise into the mainstream and then people take a dump on something like cloverfield paradox because there if there's anything that's like pulpy sci-fi fun doctor who I, I and it's one of those things where I'm actually really looking forward to the next. Um, oh, I am too. I'm looking forward to the next series, uh, which next week we're we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about more sci-fi. We're doing Black Mirror and Dimension 404. Um, it was so uh, it was so interesting to see the one episode that had our new Doctor. Mm -hmm. She just popped up. I'm like, oh, and that made me want to go back and watch Broadchurch again. Um, so it's 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 a. I would argue that it's a really good time to be a fan of film and media right now. It's not a good time to be a fan of film criticism, um, because unless this is the only show you're listening to, you're probably inundated with negativity, and we're trying to reverse the stem of, re you just reverse the tide. It's also not a good time to be a whiny, petulant man, baby. Yeah, that's it's, it's not a good look, guys. It's, it's not. It's really not. And it's... It's one of those things. Come let us play in the sci-fi sandbox. Yeah. We share our toys. Yes, definitely. I, I'm currently writing my, my next novel as a sci-fi project. And it's it's not highly intellectual. It's, de I mean, it, it definitely wears its influences on its sleeve. It's one of those things where I really cannot wait to uh, be be uh, be done with it because I want people to read it so much. Um, well, and I'm a, I'm a writer on a horror host TV show yeah. um, that's looking for a network right now. And it's great. I love it. Yeah. It's fun to write. Yeah. It's a horror comedy, and we we have the uh, the old public domain movies. Yes, as the featured movies, and it's great. I love it. So if there's if there's a thesis for this episode of the show, I feel like it needs to be: don't look down on pulp. 
don't look down on things that don't aspire to be anything more than serviceable, fun genre fiction. I feel like that is our takeaway for this episode of the show. Would you agree with that? I feel like it's also just a takeaway for the show in general. Yes. Because we, we both, I mean, we, I think that highbrow, lowbrow, and middlebrow are awful terms. They're awful concepts. They are, and they're... And, and they're entirely subjective, which makes them useless. And so, of course, we're going to bring them up ad nauseum over the course of the show. Exactly. Anyway, um, thank you for listening. Uh, we want to thank everybody who has uh, joined us here on uh, KPFT Houston HD3. You guys have been great. Um, we have been loving the feedback that we've been getting about the show. Thank you so much for following us over here. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, um, you can follow me on Twitter. My uh, handle is at AmIWriterWrong. Uh, that's also my Instagram. You can follow the show in, uh, Instagram at at Pop and Schlock Live. Uh, the Twitter handle for the show is at Pop, uh, Pop Schlock Pod. Uh, go ahead and give us a follow there. Uh, feel free to give us a mention or send us a DM. We are often bored whenever we're off the air. Uh, Meredith, do you have anything to hype up? Yes, I, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Meredith Nudo, M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H-N-U-D-O. You can find me on my public-facing Facebook page, Hardcore Nudo T, H-A-R-D-C-O-R-E, N-U-D-O-T-Y. And yes, Jake, I have a show again this weekend. You can find me at Station Theater. On Sunday night, 8.30 p.m., my team, I'm Just Happy to Be Here, is going to be competing in the battle station against Four Bear Rage Run. If you show up, uh, vote for your favorite, but hopefully your favorite is us. That's how we do it, is via audience vote. It is BYOB and pay what you can. All right. Well, we'll hope to see you there. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next time. 